Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello everyone and welcome back to the History of England. Last week we left things in a ferment of intrigue and suspense with the execution of the Earl of Kent. So you might think that the perfect thing to do this week would be to finish that story off, but I'm afraid that's not the way I see it. Because, as it so happens, this is by my reckoning the 100th episode, given the few supplementaries that I've done. So, hurrah for that and let's have something a bit different. So this week we have a special episode, a murder mystery if you like. Our job, gentle listeners, is to make a once and for all final decision about how Edward II died. Did he die in 1327 in England, or did he in fact die much later? The traditional story, of course, that everyone knows, and indeed which I knew until I started doing the history of England, was that Edward II had an accident with a red-hot poker. However, there has for a long, long time been another version of events, after the discovery of a letter in 1855. Essentially, this version says that Edward II wasn't in fact killed, but was instead secretly kept alive by Edward III and Mortimer, and then went to live abroad before finally dying many years later. Now, normally, this is the sort of thing one would dismiss as fodder for the credulous and pathological conspiracy theorists, But then the historian Ian Mortimer picked it up, and he made a pretty good case, and he also makes the point that many fine historians such as William Stubbs and Professor Tout have also looked at the letter that was found and failed to explain it away. So, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to do my very best to present both arguments and as much of the evidence as I can muster and manage. Then you lot or as many of you lotters are interested, will vote for which one you believe most. You'll be able to vote in two ways. By posting a comment on the website, www.thehistoryofengland.com, or by going to the History of England Facebook group page, where I'll put one of those quizzy things. How does all that sound? 
So before anyone complains, I should start with a caveat. It's really difficult to look at this sort of thing through a podcast where large, detailed academic submissions have been written. So look, everyone, we're not trying to rewrite history here, just have a bit of fun. The question is, on the balance of the evidence presented, which story do you believe most? Now, don't know will not be an acceptable answer. We'll have no fence-sitters here. Effectively, none of us know for sure anyway. OK, so here we go. Let's start by establishing a basic chronology. Edward, as we know, had been removed by Mortimer for Kenilworth Castle, much to Lancaster's fury, and placed in Barclay Castle in March 1327. There are two people principally responsible for looking after the king from April to the time of his death in September 1327. The first is Thomas de Barclay, the owner of the castle and a son-in-law of Roger Mortimer. One of the things worth noting as a motivation for the murder or removal of Edward were the constant plots to release him. There had already been several, and Thomas had actually been partly responsible for stopping one of those already, on one occasion finding the king after he'd actually been sprung from Barclay Castle. But the indenture that gave Barclay his brief was shared with another man, John Maltravers. John Maltravers was a long-time henchman of Mortimer, so he was partly responsible for looking after the king as well. So according to the official traditional story, a chap called William Ockley, a trusted household knight of Mortimer's, arrived at Barclay in September, sent by Mortimer because he'd heard of another plot to free Edward. Edward was then supposed to have died of natural causes on the 21st of September. News of his death was carried to Edward III at Lincoln and reached him on the 23rd of September, carried by a chap called Thomas Gurney. The death was then announced publicly on the 28th of September. So there we go. Edward II was dead on the 21st of September. The news reached Edward on the 23rd and it was announced to the world on the 28th. Edward's corpse was embalmed at Barclay by a local woman and we have the expenses for her work and kit in the month after his death. So one of the arguments in favour of the official story is that the body was watched with a number of people seeing his corpse until on the 21st of October it was handed over to the Abbot of St Peter's in Gloucester. One of the arguments in favour of the official story is that the body was seen by a large number of people. But in actual fact what happened, the key chap here is somebody called William Beaucaire. Now he was the man who watched the corpse from the 21st of September all the way until the burial. Once the corpse reached Gloucester on the 21st of October, a month later, there are indeed loads of people who watch the corpse. But for the first month, officially at least, really it's just William. And there's no evidence that anybody else apart from the embalmer herself actually saw the body. So there are two arguments in favour of the official story. Someone was with the body the whole time, even if it was just William Beaucaire. And a lot of people saw the corpse after it had been taken to Gloucester. And then there is a funeral at Gloucester with a magnificent tomb for Edward II in the finest royal tradition. So the point is, everybody would have spotted if it wasn't Edward, so he must have died. But Mortimer has a couple of points to make about this. Firstly, that Beauclair's role as a loyal Mortimer servant 
could have been to keep an eye on the corpse and keep the corpse away from people until it had been sorted out. The second point is that the tradition of embalming medieval corpses was that they were covered with something called seer cloth, which is a shroud made of waxed cloth. So maybe the corpse was only seen by other people apart from Beauclair when it had been all wrapped up, and therefore not possible to see his features. He supports this with a couple of interesting points. Firstly, many years later, when Richard II dies, apparently it is specifically stated that the seer cloth had to be cut away from his face for people to be able to identify the body. And secondly, the Earl of Kent, who had apparently been at the funeral of Edward II, later believed that Edward could be alive, hence his trial and execution, which suggests that although he'd been to the funeral, he hadn't been able to make a positive identification, and therefore presumably nor had anybody else. So the point about all this is that there is a possibility that the body could have been swapped. Okay, going back to the traditional story, the manner of Edward's death varies according to the chroniclers. And actually we need to make a few points about the chroniclers themselves. The first point to make is that none of them say anything about any suggestion that Edward II had been spirited away and left the country rather than dying. All the 14th century chronicles are pretty clear that Edward had died in 1327, however he did die. So that of course is why this is the official history. But Mortimer makes the point that the vast majority of chroniclers lived in monasteries and were dependent on other chroniclers and travellers for their news and information. So many chronicles are based on others. The trick is to find the original and to find out which are particularly well informed. Even amongst the chroniclers, there is considerable debate about how Edward actually died. Some said he just died of natural causes. One of the best contemporary observers was a chap called Adam Muramuth, and he had connections with the southwest, being based at Exeter. He states that Edward was suffocated by Thomas Gurney and John Maltravers, and doesn't mention William Ockley at all. He had nothing to say whatsoever about bottoms or red-hot pokers. His testimony supports the point that the body was seen, but it's a strange line. He says, Many abbots, priors, knights... Burgesses of Bristol and Gloucester were summoned to see his corpse intact, and this they saw superficially. Hmm, interesting word, superficially. What's that mean then? Just that no one was allowed to hang about, which I guess would have been unsurprising if so many people wanted to see it, or does it mean something else? What it could support is Mortimer's point about the fact that the body's face was covered with cloth, so they might have seen a body but it could have been somebody else's body. Anyway, other chroniclers then begin this tradition of the red-hot poker. Here's the description in the chronicle called The Brute. Roger Mortimer sent orders as to how and in what manner the king should be killed. And later, when the aforesaid Thomas and John, that's Thomas Gurney and John Maltravers, by the way, had seen the letter and the order, they were friendly towards King Edward of Carnarvon at supper time, so the king knew nothing of their treachery. And when that night the king had gone to bed and was asleep, the traitors went quietly into his chamber and laid a table on his stomach, and with other men's help pressed him down. At this he awoke, and in fear of his life turned himself upside down. 
The tyrants, false traitors, then took a horn and put it into his fundament as deep as they could and then took a spit of burning copper and put the horn into his body and oftentimes rolled there with his bowels. And so they killed their lord and nothing was perceived as to the manner of his death. This idea of the red-hot poker then gets picked up by other chroniclers such as Higdon. You have to think, though, that if Edward did die in 1327, the story of the pillows and the suffocation is so much more likely. After all, you are far more likely not to leave a mark that way. And there's a strong suspicion that the red-hot poker gets added later as a kind of comment or divine irony on the suspicion that he was homosexual. The other work worth mentioning is Geoffrey Le Baker. He really bigs a whole load of things up. He claims to have had access to independent witnesses and therefore to first-hand accounts. According to his narrative, the whole manner of Edward's treatment was different. Right from the beginning, he was threatened with death. He was taken from Kenilworth to Corfe and then to Bristol, where he was tortured, left without heat to try and cause madness. He was made to walk. He was shaved with ditch water. He was crowned with hay, left in a room with rotted flesh. Only when it was seen that Edward was too butch and healthy to die by such means did they then kill him with the help of cushions and red-hot pokers. All of which makes for a great story, but the suspicion is that it's all in an attempt to mirror the passion of Christ and draw a parallel of the saintliness of Edward against his target of Isabella. To his mind, she's a Jezebel who should be punished for her adultery with Mortimer and not allowed to live and die in luxury, as in fact happens. The point about all of this, other than discussing how Edward did die, if he did die, is to throw a certain amount of doubt about how much the chroniclers really knew about events at Barclay Castle in 1327. You can choose to believe some of them, but they are at very least open to interpretation and challenge, they all vary in their view of events, and it's difficult to reject other theories about Edward's death purely on their evidence. So, then let's look at two more bits of evidence. The trial of the Earl of Kent and the quite remarkable letter of the Fichy. The trial of the Earl of Kent first, and it's quickly told. Basically, Kent says that he had evidence via a Dominican friar that Edward was still alive and living at Corfe Castle. So he proceeded to put a plan together to get his half-brother out of prison. Mortimer then produced incriminating evidence in court, as we heard last week, and Kent was executed. There are broadly two readings of all this. Number one. This confirms the conspiracy theory. Edward II had indeed escaped murder at Barclay Castle and had been taken to Corfe. There, Kent had discovered his existence and rather naively tried to rescue him. Mortimer boldly challenged him, knowing that Edward III would have to back him up or admit that he'd known all along that his father was still alive. To believe this, you kind of have to believe that Mortimer had an absolutely iron nerve. He didn't try to do as had been done for other traitors and not let them speak to the jury. He was risking exposure or rebellion from Edward III. Some kind of secret murder might have been far safer than all this story. Or number two, Kent was either mistaken, a fool or tricked. One theory is that Dominican Friar was an agent of Mortimer's who set Kent up. To believe this, you have to think that Kent really was some kind of gullible idiot 
Or alternatively, you could believe that the whole thing was a setup that Mortimer wanted Kent out of the way as a source of opposition, and therefore tricked into plotting against Edward III. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Okay, so then the infamous Fichy letter. This was discovered in 1855, and the evidence seems to be that it is very clearly not a forgery, which would, of course, have been a convenient way out of the problem. The full text of the letter, and various links to other sources, by the way, is available on the post at www.thehistoryofengland.com. The letter was written by Manuela de Fichy, the papal notary and bishop who died in 1348. The whole thing is very fishy. Ha <laughs> uh, But the point is, this is not a potty fly-by-night bloke. This is a man in a sober, important, religious and administrative position. He's a notary and a bishop. The letter gives a detailed and largely accurate account of the alternative story. Edward was warned that bad men were coming to kill him by a servant, who helped him escape Barclay Castle, killing a porter on the way. These bad men, who included Thomas Gurney, put the body of the porter in a box, which was duly the one buried at Gloucester. Edward then found refuge at Corfe Castle, where he lived for two and a half years until Kent was executed. When Kent is executed, Mortimer and Edward II, and indeed Edward III, realise that there's a real danger that Edward II will be discovered. So Edward went on the run going to Ireland and then Normandy, staying with the Pope for a couple of weeks and travelling around, including to Cologne, until he rocked up to a monastery in Italy where he finally died. Now, it's a real pose of this letter. It's pretty clear that it can't just be dismissed. Great minds have puzzled over it. The choices really are that, number one, Fichy was fooled by an imposter. The imposter knew enough about events to be convincing. He told the story to Fichy, who related it in good faith to Edward III by this letter. To believe this option, you have to believe that this imposter knew an awful lot about the events of Edward II's death, more than any of the chroniclers as it happens. Number two, it's some politically motivated hoax. Fichy was Genoese, and at the time Genoa was trying to win independence from Milan, Maybe the idea was to get some money out of Edward, and indeed Edward did pay off a claim for damages made by Genoa at this time, to the tune of 8,000 quid. So the traditionalist argument might go that it's a hoax, that the story about Edward II's survival was out there, and that the Genoese were then just picking up on that and trying to embarrass Edward and get him to pay them off. 
The damages for £8,000, by the way, were against Hugh Dispenser and some piracy that he'd indulged in in 1321. Or, the third option is that you believe it. It's true. Edward did survive, and this letter really proves it. So, a few more things to cover off before I can summarise and submit this to your vote. The biggest things really are the trials and fates of the men supposedly responsible for Edward's death. After Mortimer's death in 1330, a number of men were tried specifically for Edward II's murder by Edward III. So they were Roger Mortimer, and we know about him. And then there were also Thomas Barclay, Thomas Gurney and William Ockley. The story of Thomas Barclay. This is very odd. Barclay was denied the chance to put his case to the jury, apart from being given a chance to strongly deny it, and make a rather remarkable assertion. This was, quote, that he never knew about his death until the present Parliament. So his death refers to Edward II's death. The present Parliament was in 1330. Yes, that's 1330. So what on earth did he mean? Had he taken leave of his senses? Come on, man, get a grip. The whole world had been talking about Edward's death since 1327. So there are two explanations of this rather strange claim that he never knew about Edward II's death. The simplest is that the transcription is slightly wrong, and that what he meant was that he hadn't heard about Edward's murder until 1330. It's, I suppose, theoretically possible that Thomas Barclay hadn't heard about the fact that Edward was supposed to have been murdered, but it's extremely unlikely. After all, he was in the direct firing line and he'd have to have been pretty bovine not to take an interest. Though, of course, this kind of answer does fall conveniently into the passive resistance line. Weren't me, Gov. Don't know what you're talking about. I knew nothing about it. Alternatively, the other explanation from the conspiracists is that this is coded language. Barclay is saying that he's not guilty that he knows that Edward II is alive and therefore can't be responsible for his murder. Barclay also then falls back on the Ronald Reagan defence by claiming that he'd been away and ill on the 21st and so ill he couldn't remember anything, which is all a bit unbelievable, and his household accounts appear to show that he was at Barclay at the time, in fact. It's all very inconsistent. But the key point is that Edward III believed that he was not part of the murder plot, because he was acquitted and lived a long and happy life in active service for the Crown. Although it does also have to be said that it did take four years for him to be re-established in the Crown's favour, so clearly Edward III was to a degree suspicious. So as far as Barclay is concerned, you have to make a decision. Number one, was he in on the conspiracy to let Edward escape? Edward knew this, but couldn't admit publicly, but nonetheless he let him off. Or was Barclay just rather inefficient, and he failed to see what was going on under his nose in September 1327. Edward was very suspicious, but eventually decided that this was just the case, that Thomas Barclay just hadn't understood what William Ockley and Thomas Gurney were doing in his own castle. The story of John Maltravers. Then there's John Maltravers, Mortimer's henchman, and the other person responsible for looking after Edward. He's the bloke most chroniclers and historians tend to tar with the brush of murder. His story is also a bit weird, to be honest. 
Actually, he's only accused of responsibility for the death of the Earl of Kent by falsely misleading him that Edward II was alive. He's called to Parliament in 1330 with Barclay, but finds there's something good on telly that night and doesn't go, and flees the country. OK, so sure as eggs is eggs, he must be guilty then. But after all that, it gets a bit weird. A message goes from Maltravers to Edward III saying he's got information regarding his father's death. Edward then starts using Maltravers in 1339, 12 years after the supposed death, as an agent in Flanders. And in addition, it could well be that Maltravers was not at Barclay in September, but in fact was at Corfe, since there is some evidence that Barclay and Maltravers would look after Edward on alternate months. In the end, Maltravers died in his bed in England. Once again, Edward had decided not to have him executed, although he looks pretty guilty. So with Maltravers again, I think you have a choice. Number one, if you think he's guilty of complicity in Edward II's death, you have to believe that Edward III kind of decided that for whatever reason he wanted to draw a line under his father's death and that by 1339 he's prepared to let bygones be bygones. Or two, that Edward had learnt that his father had in fact escaped and that Maltravers therefore clearly wasn't guilty of murder. The story of William Ockley. William Ockley was the highly trusted member of Mortimer's wife's household who arrived at Barclay in September just before Edward died. He was apparently sent by Mortimer to Barclay because Mortimer had heard of a plot to free Edward II and sent him to make sure it didn't happen. Ockley was accused of the murder, but disappeared in 1330 and was never heard of again. And so the accusation of murder successfully stuck to him, or officially at least. The story of Thomas Gurney. Thomas Gurney was again an adherent of Mortimer's and probably had some personal animosity towards Edward II, having been imprisoned by him. But we shouldn't make too much of this. In the end, he was pardoned by Edward III. He is the man who was sent to tell Edward III about the king's death. After being accused of murder by Edward III, he also fled the country, but unlike William Ockley, he was captured by a man called William Twain. By the time he was caught, he was clearly in a bad way, and although brought back to England, he was dead on arrival. Interestingly, Twain had clearly tried to keep him alive. Physicians had been sent all the way from England to help. Edward clearly really wanted to question him. Does this suggest that actually Edward didn't know anything about his father being alive? Or that he simply wanted Gurney to be punished for imprisoning his father? OK, so we're almost there at the summing up, my lud and my ladies. Just a few more points. Edward III meets his father, or meets an imposter, at Cologne in 1338. In 1338, Edward III has a strange meeting at Koblenz with a man claiming to be his father. Edward III meets his father or an imposter at Koblenz in 1338. In 1338, Edward III had a strange meeting at Koblenz with a man claiming to be his father, a man called William the Welshman. The reporting of all of this is remarkably flat. No big statements that the guy was clearly an imposter and so on. He wasn't punished. He was accompanied by priests and apparently had come from Lombardy. So maybe supporting the Fichy letter that this is where Edward was hanging out. 
The king, Edward III, was clearly interested enough to meet him. So one story goes that this was indeed Edward II. His son knew full well he was alive, and a joyful reunion took place, or possibly along the lines of, look son, give me back my throne, or I'll stop your pocket money. Or alternatively, Edward III was just curious, not inclined to be vengeful. After all, Edward II himself had once met an imposter claiming to be him, and had actually had the grace not to have him punished or executed, though then, truth to say, he was talked into killing him by Isabella. Isabella and the heart of Edward II. Then there's the case of Isabella and her heart. One of the things that happens much later in her will in 1358 is that Isabella asks for the heart of Edward II to be buried with her. Now you have to ask, if this was in fact the heart of some porter, would she really have done that? So to believe the whole story, you have to believe that after Edward II's death, which would have been sometime after 1338, his body was brought back to England and snuck into the official tomb in Gloucester Cathedral. Surely possible. Surely also high risk. What's Edward III's attitude in all of this? So the conspiracist argument runs that in 1327 to 1330, Mortimer used the information about Edward III's father being alive to control Edward III. He made him complicit, and Edward III was therefore forced to do things like agree to the death of his uncle, the Earl of Kent. And this means that Edward needs to keep lying thereafter. But on the other hand, it could be argued that Edward could have claimed not to know about the survival of his father, could have claimed that he was under the coercion of the evil Mortimer. Edward II had, after all, legally abdicated. Very few people wanted him back, and Edward III had been legally crowned. So the point about all this is, what's the point? Why would Mortimer go to all this trouble and pain? Did it really give him any more leverage over Edward III? OK, so all very complicated. What I'm going to try and do now is sum all of that up so that you can then vote on option one and option two. And again, my apologies for only presenting a fraction of all the arguments and evidences available. What I've done, actually, by the way, is put a sort of cut-down transcript of this episode on the website because I realise it's rather difficult. Anyway, there you go. So, option one is the contention that Edward II was not murdered at Berkeley Castle but instead escaped and died somewhere in Italy after 1338. Under this version of events, Edward was warned by a servant that death was on its way. He and the servant escaped, killing a porter at Berkeley Castle, and fled to take refuge in Corfe Castle. Mortimer found out about this and decided to keep it that way because it meant that he would not have to suffer constant plots to release Edward II and put him back on the throne and give him leverage with Edward III. Thomas Barclay is clearly in on the act, because he hints at it during his trial, saying that he hadn't heard yet about Edward II's death. So, the porter's body is substituted for Edward II's body by William Beaucaire, William Ockley and Thomas Gurney. The corpse is covered in a seer cloth and no one is allowed to see below the cloth. People are allowed to view the body but only superficially. All the other evidence then points the same way. Maltravers and Barclay are not prosecuted, which must be because Edward III knows his father isn't dead. But the Earl of Kent finds out about it. 
and why else would he claim that Edwards is alive unless there's some truth in the theory? Previously, he's been loyal to the Mortimer regime. The Fichy letter is genuine, because it is remarkably accurate about many verifiable but difficult-to-know events. Edward III meets his father at Coblenz. At some point, between 1338 and 1358, Edward II dies, and his body is replaced in the tomb at Gloucester Cathedral, so that when Isabella gets the heart, it is by then the real heart of Edward, and not the porter at Berkeley Castle. Option two is that the traditional story of the death of Edward II is correct. Edward II was murdered on Mortimer's orders, brought to Berkeley Castle by William Ockley. He was probably murdered by being smothered, rather than the bottom thing, but in the end he was just as dead. Barclay didn't mean anything by what he said at the trial. He was clearly lying, but basically just because he was trying to say, I know nothing about it, Gov, it wasn't me. Maltravers and Barclay are not let off because they know Edward II is alive, but because Edward III thinks they are either just inefficient or weren't there at the time. The true culprits, after all, William Ockley and Thomas Gurney, are indeed either hunted down as far as they can be or managed to escape. As for the Earl of Kent, well, he's a credulous fool. The Dominican friar was one of a long line of fantasists of a healthy tradition who claimed that dead kings were really alive. Or maybe even he was put up to it by Mortimer in order to trap the Earl of Kent, who was a potential political opponent. The Fichy letter is a made-up piece of gossip and rumour. Fichy himself clearly believes it, but the imposter he spoke to claiming that he was Edward II was indeed just that, an imposter, albeit a well-informed one. Isabella clearly thought Edward was dead and in Gloucester Cathedral since she asked for the heart and surely who would have gone to all the trouble and risk of discovery of smuggling the king's body back to England from Italy and secretly putting it in the Gloucester tomb just so that Isabella could ask for the heart. And anyway, the conspiracy theory is nutty. What did Mortimer really stand to gain by all these shenanigans? He already had control over Isabella and Edward, since, as we'll see, Edward does in fact reassert himself and take control of the throne back from Mortimer. So there we go, the pros and cons, option one, option two. Now it's your turn, your chance to decide this historical conundrum. To vote, ladies and gentlemen, go to www.thehistoryofengland.com and add a comment to episode 94A with your opinion. Or search for the History of England Facebook group, where you will find a question where you can log your answer. I suspect this hasn't really worked. It's all a bit too complicated. But anyway, give it a go. Next week, we'll be having a bit of an odds and ends week. We'll finish off Mortimer and Isabella's regime and have a quick catch-up on a few European history matters and so set ourselves up for one of the most dramatic reigns in English history, when for a short while the English bowmen ruled Western Europe. Thanks to everyone who comments on the website or on iTunes or who joins the Facebook group and indeed to all of you for listening. Good luck everyone. Happy voting and have a great week. Mom. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This Mother's Day, treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their advanced eye care duo brightens and firms skin around your eyes, while the Golden Glow Body Trio nourishes and smooths skin all over. Go to oseamalibu.com and use code MOM for 10% off your first order site-wide.